We've seen all the video call fails by now. The mute button mishaps, the cat cameos, people not realizing the camera's on when their pants are off. But none of this makes Fred feel any better about giving an entire sales pitch, mistakenly using a filter that turns him into an itsy-bitsy baby duck. How do I turn this thing off? It's too late, Fred. It's too late. When you realize it's better to do business in person, it matters where you stay. Welcome to the Hilton Garden Inn, Fred. The meeting room is right down the hall. Hilton, for the stay. Hey, this is DeRay, and welcome to Positive the People. In this episode, it's me, DR, and Kai talking about the news that you didn't know from the past week, the underreported news that you should have heard about, but didn't break the headlines. And then I sit down with Salima Masakela, Emmy-nominated producer and surfer, to chat about his relationship with the water. Now the ocean can be a scary place, especially for Black people. Salima reminds us about Black people's relationship with the water historically, about our relationship with surfing and so many other water traditions. We talk through the ancient African practice of surfing and how it's evolved to now. Here we go. My advice for this week is to go to lunch, go to dinner, meet the friends, go hang out. Like, you know, I am going to go, um, I'm going to go get some ice cream this week with the new ice cream space. But I, but I had lunch recently with like new friends and it was like great to just get out and like make time for new people also to enter your life. Doesn't have to mean that you are taking away from the people already in your life, but like go to lunch, go to dinner, do the things, just like, you know, not not necessarily needing to hit on people, but be like, hey, we should like hang out and just meet. Do that. Go to lunch, go to dinner, go get coffee, go get drinks, like do the thing, meet new people. Let's go. Family, here we are. Welcome to another episode of Pod Save the People. I am Diara Ballinger. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Diara Ballinger. I'm Auntie Kaya Henderson. You can find me on the Twitter at Henderson Kaya. This is DeRay at DRAY on Twitter. So we wanted to, to jump off today's conversation with this whole feud that's going down between Disney and Governor DeSantis down in Florida. Uh, Seems like what he's doing is, not seems like, this is what happened. So Disney was uh, in disagreement with some of DeSantis' policies. I mean, I don't know what's taken them so long to be in disagreement about so many things he's been doing, but here we are. But the last straw for them was, um, you know, Governor DeSantis is, you know, banning discussion on sexual orientation or gender identity in kindergarten to third grade classrooms. All these legis- all this legislation that he's been pushing. Disney has been speaking out against it. And so as a way to punish them, um, he is taking away their tax perks. So it looks like $578 million in credits Disney can use to reduce its state income taxes through 2040. DeSantis is pulling through this legislation. Now, is this a big deal from my perspective? I don't know, because my small black business don't get no tax breaks. So, you know, it's very hard for me to be sympathetic to a multi-billion dollar company when I'm just over here, you know, trying to survive. Me and my black co-founder employing black folks. But, you know, we don't get tax credits. So, you know, don't hey. You have, don't you have nieces and nephews that need to go to the Magic Kingdom? Come on. <laughs> but just, and it's about, 
a thousand dollars a pop to take them knuckleheads down to you Disney think, World. You so, think it's a thousand dollars now? Wait till you see what it's gonna be like after this goes right, down. Right, right, right. I'm gonna listen. I need to invest in Universal Circus because that's where we all need to be going. Okay? <laughs> Leave Disney alone altogether. What's interesting about this to me, I mean, there's a bunch of different things that are interesting. One is like, it is just rampant political pettiness, right? And I think that that has incredible implications um, on corporate America because it means it, I mean, this is an attempt to chill corporate America's voice in terms of standing up to political policies that they disagree with, right? It means that every CEO is gonna stop to think about whether they stand up for things that they say are values about their company or that are really important to their employees. The reason, I mean, Disney was, let's be clear, Disney was keeping it cool and not saying anything until their LGBTQ employees were like, yo, what? Yeah. And they were like, oh yeah, yeah, okay, let us get on this and and oppose this. And now in in retribution, they are they stand to to lose not just tax breaks, but tons of money. They aren't the only ones who stand to lose. Orange County, right now, Disney pays for their fire people, their police people, their all of these public services. And it means that the homeowners in Orange County are about to get hit with at least a 25% increase in, in their property taxes, to somewhere to the tune of $100 million. And if the govern if the legislatures legislators in Florida do not understand that no one community is going to be able to shoulder the economic burden that this decision is going to make it's going to land right back on their doorsteps and other floridians are going to have to pay to subsidize this pub, this political pettiness that this man is undertaking y'all don't even get me started the thing about the state of florida repealing disney's um sovereignty over the town that they're in. They had legal sovereignty. They sort of ran the town. Uh, the state penalized them. And Kai, I hadn't even thought of the chilling effect that this will have on other businesses. Like if you do this to Disney, you'll definitely do it to my company, right? Because Disney is Disney, right? Like not only a big company, but a big brand, international, has changed people's lives uh, for one way or the other. Everybody knows a Disney character. But what I thought was really interesting is that the analysis that I read was like, it might not even really hurt Disney. Disney Disney might have to move slower to get permits and stuff like that. But that all of the all of the maintenance and all the stuff that they had just done because they were, quote, their own town will now be pushed off to local communities who will, even if the price of Disney doesn't go up, those local communities will have to incur the cost of the Disney thing. So you'll be penalized for just being in proximity. And it's one of those things where it's like, you know, you see the government use the full weight of its power to implement just bad and homophobic policies. And even when people try and stand up, they get smacked down. So I'm interested to see what Disney does. Disney has so much money and so much leverage. They could do PR campaign. Like they could actually go full blown against all of this if they want to. And I'm interested to see how hard they fight back. Yeah, and the last thing I'll say is it looks like other states are inviting Disney to come there. And I mean, what would the state of Florida be without Walt Disney World? So many of us would never have to go there again. (laughs) 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 That's all. 
So this DeSantis mess is not just about Disney. It's not just about the don't say gay law. This is about a whole lot of things, including textbooks. Um, Textbooks, which are usually not controversial. They usually don't make national uh, news. I'm just talking regular old K through 12 textbooks. In this case, math textbooks, which uh, Mr. DeSantis is also dabbling in um, as part of his political petty protest, political petty something. I don't know what it is. Um, but <clears throat> each year or so, every couple of years in some places, um, textbooks have to go for state approval to make sure that they are aligned with the state's curriculum um, and to make sure that uh, they meet the state standards. And in some cases, um, that's a very stringent review. In most places, it is not. Uh, we have a, a local um, education system which allows localities to pick the things that, the textbooks that they're uh, going to um, that they're going to use. But in the case of Florida, um, you have to submit your textbook possibilities to the state, the Florida State Department of Education. And last week, the department, um, there were 132 math textbooks that were submitted for review to the Florida Department of Education. And 41% or 54 math textbooks were rejected. Some of them for not meeting um, the Florida benchmark standards, but many of them, including 70% of the kindergarten through fifth grade text math textbooks, were rejected because they uh, had prohibited topics in them. What prohibitive topics do you ask? Things like critical race theory, which everybody seems to agree is not taught in kindergarten through 12th grade, um, and social and emotional learning. And social and emotional learning is a very interesting thing because um, it really is, it previously was something that conservatives really got behind. Things like teaching character and perseverance and resilience. Um, and now uh, it turns out that according to Chris Rufo, in practice, social and emotional learning serves as a delivery mechanism for radical pedagogies such as critical race theory and gender deconstructionism. Who is Christopher Rufo, do you ask? Christopher Rufo is this random academic dude who is the one who set this whole critical race theory thing on fire. He, we talked about this a while ago on the pod, but he literally like sent an email or a tweet or something to Donald Trump and was like, hey, critical race theory and set off the whole conservative movement against critical race theory. Um, and it comes into play in this Florida stuff because now you have a very activist Florida governor who is not just in your you know, kids entertainment experience at Disney, who's not just in your what teachers can say in the classroom, but is actually in textbooks. The New York Times reviewed 21 of the textbooks that um, that the Florida State Department of Education rejected to find out why. And what they found is textbooks were rejected for saying things like, to learn together, we have to disagree respectfully. That's some of the social and emotional learning stuff that is in there. Or 
um, there's a, a piece uh, called Math Musicals, which lays out the skills that kids should learn in addition to math, self-awareness, self-management, responsible decision-making, social awareness, and relationship skills. Or um, there are uh, examples of students being exposed to history. Um, so one math textbook talks about, uh, it's an eighth grade pre-algebra textbook, and it has a biography of Dorothy Johnson Vaughn, an African-American mathematician who led a computing unit for what is now known as NASA. Um, and they have taken down um, books that have um, ethnically diverse names and foods um, or mini biographies of mathematicians throughout history, almost all of whom were women or people of color. And so here you have a full on um, attack, frankly, in one state. But as you've seen what happens with the conservative playbooks, um, other states will follow where you're attacking not just how what teachers are saying, but literally um, what kids are learning in their textbooks. And I think what is most scary to me about this, you know, if it was just Florida, that'd be one thing. We could all decide we weren't going to Florida anymore. But in fact, <clears throat> as I mentioned, um, we will see other states that start to replicate these policies. And my Republican friends tell me that Ron DeSantis is literally one of the front runners for the Republican nomination for president um, in the next election. And so we need to pay very, very careful attention to what is going on in Florida. Um, we need to understand that parental rights are not just white parental rights, that African-American parents and Asian parents and Latino parents also have rights around what their kids should be taught, that um, that straight families, gay families, and all, all other, kind, every kind of family um, actually has a say in what they their children are taught. And this is why we got to get active, not just at the gubernatorial level, not just at the state level, but at our local school board level, because those are the people who really control what our kids are learning. It's also a reminder that people don't normally pay attention to these processes. Like this is like procurement and you know, the curriculum part, thankfully people are paying attention to this in Florida, but I can only imagine how in some other states where like people just aren't even paying attention to the textbook publishing process that like this has gone underexplored. But what was most fascinating for me, Kaya, in reading about this is that for regular math textbooks, K to five in Florida, there's only one company, Accelerate Learning, that is approved. And that company is owned by the private equity firm that the Virginia governor, Glenn Youngskin, are, that held Youngkin. by the Youngkin, um, that Accelerate the Learning Carlisle is owned group. by the Carlisle Group, which was uh, the group that Gl Governor Glenn Youngkin was a CEO of, co-CEO of. And you just see how they are just running, like money has allowed them to just run these games over and over. So not only do you ban teaching anything about race and justice, but you make sure that the only company producing the math textbook for a set of people is owned by your friend's former company to keep them in business. And you know, once people stop paying attention to that, this is a news story today. Will it be a news story in two months, three months? That'll be, uh, you know, everybody, you always need a textbook. 
Accelerate Learning will always be in business because they'll be the sole provider for a set of years of math textbooks in Florida. And it's like, you see how this stuff happens. And I also see, for better or for worse, how these independent agencies get made to be completely independent of the elected officials. Clearly not the case in Florida because the governor is influencing those things. But I think about, about, I think about in Maryland how, you know, because of corruption, we built 5,000 layers so the mayor can only appoint, but if chosen by these people, like you build all these layers to circumvent really bad people. And the downside of that is that when really good people get in, sometimes they have to move really slow because we built all these crazy layers but there is no recompense for people. And if I've ever believed in recall elections in some places, if I haven't before, I definitely believe in it now because you get stuck with people. Like you think about Eric Adams in New York, you're like, this is just a bad train. This is bad. And people have years more to go before you can do something about it. And same thing um, in Florida. I, you know, I want to learn more about what organizing or what can be done to push um the immigrant communities and people who we know have been, who have not realized that he is hurting them too, in some ways um, to, to go against him because this is wild. I think the other thing that I'll just add to this DeSantis conversation is um, this came out this week too, but <laughs> DeSantis of course has been pushing a congressional map um, that he wants the legislature in Florida to adopt. And if it is adopted, um, basically black folks, like black folks would lose two seats. Oh, wait. So the Republican controlled Florida legislature this week approved a voting map drawn by DeSantis that eliminates districts now represented by Val Demings and Al Lawson, both black Democrats. The Senate approved the map earlier this week and the state house adopted in it its party line vote on Thursday, this past Thursday. Um, after these black lawmakers temporarily halted the proceedings with the sit-in protest. Why isn't this on the news? Like this is, I'm on like facingsouth.org. I don't even know what this is. Defend democracy in the South. We appreciate y'all because it's not news. <laughs> y'all, let me tell you, this man is so dangerous and, and he's not going away. He's 43 years old, right? He, and you've, you've heard me rail about how, what kind of country are we when all of our presidential candidates are old people. Um, he's 43 years old. He went to Yale undergrad. He went to Harvard Law School. He is smart. He is young and he is in control. Y'all, we got to like, where's your people, Diara? Where's your, where's your Democrats? <laughs> Hello? Are y'all out mm. there? Hello? Mm. Hello? I don't know. I don't know where they are. We need help. Don't go anywhere. More Politics the People's coming. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondery's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to 
to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states and Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, the Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. Okay, my news, my news. So this news really stood out to me because I never knew about Hazel Scott. Have y'all heard about Hazel Scott? Did not know till you brought it to the pod. Thanks, sis. I mean, okay, so we all know Adam Clayton Powell, obviously. You know, he's got a street named after him in Harlem. He's one of the longest serving Black uh, members of Congress. But what I had no idea of is his wife, Hazel Scott, who was basically like a music prodigy. She went to Juilliard when she was eight years old. And usually the earliest they would accept somebody was at 16 years old. So Hazel Scott, just reading. So this this article is from the Washington Post. y'all. It's very short, but sweet. So check it out. But Hazel Scott debuted at Carnegie Hall at the age of 20. Um, and at that point, she had been playing the piano for 17 years. And that the night she debuted at Carnegie Hall, it was 1941. Wow. So she was basically like a, a shining star, again, a music prodigy. Um, on this particular evening at Carnegie, Carnegie Hall, she was playing Franz Liszt's second, Hungar- second Hungarian Rhapsody. She also played Bach's two-part Inventions, Frederick Chopin's Minute Waltz, and then Sis took a little turn and put a little jazz on it. Remix. Go ahead. <laughs> 1941, the first remix. Okay. Um, so she would be, she'd also go on to become the first Black American man or woman to host her own nationally syndicated television show. It was called The Hazel Scott Show. Um, and so, you know. Somehow, and it, and I think it really speaks to her talent and her transcendence that she was able to have a peak in her career actually during Jim Crow. Um, so she she had performances. She was on Broadway. She worked with symphony orchestras, and she earned seventy five thousand dollars annually, which in today's time would be about a million dollars a year. So in nineteen twenty four, Hazel Scott was just four years old when she and her mother moved from Trinidad to New York City. And they moved in the peak of the Harlem Renaissance. And her mother was actually a a saxophonist and a pianist. And so young Hazel grew up very much around music and and started playing very, very early on. Um, What ended up happening, though, and probably why we don't know that much about her, is that she got caught up in kind of this McCarthyism era, you know, calling people out for communism. And it kind of then, you know didn't really matter who you were, or what your background was, or how successful you are. It kind of ruined you, right? So she ended up leaving the States and going to Paris, where she found refuge there and started to perform there. And I just find this so fascinating. And maybe it's because she ended up spending so much time in Europe, but I just feel like we know so much about Adam Clayton Powell and so little about Hazel Scott. And given how talented she was, I just it just blows my mind. So Something that her son, who was interviewed in this piece, said is that, you know, the, his mom's prominence is kind of, and visibility is coming back. There there are evidently videos of her on YouTube, so I'm going to go check those out. 
Um, but yeah, she was, she just seemed pretty fantastic. She also was committed to, to civil rights. She um, marched to the U.S. Embassy in 1963 in support of the March on Washington. Anyway, I thought this was cool and fabulous, and she just seems out of this world. And so I wanted to bring it to the pod and share it with y'all because, you know, as a scholar in the Black Studies, I'm just very surprised I had not heard of Miss Hazel Scott. So I want to share it with y'all. I think what was so, one of the things, I mean, first of all, just remarkable story and literally like, I mean, what I loved about this piece is they didn't even mention um, Adam Clayton Powell Jr. to like, you know, paragraph, whatever, 99. Um, It's so funny you say that, Kaya, because I was telling Paolo about this and Paolo was like, well, what happened to Adam Clayton Powell? I was like, who cares? It doesn't matter, right? We care, but it doesn't matter in this context. Well, this is the thing. This lady was her own thing, like independent of who her husband was, right? And we love Adam, Adam Clayton Powell and all of that jazz, but this lady was, the the article says she was Colin Kaepernick before Kaepernick was Kaepernick in that she took radical stands around Blackness. She refused, she got to Hollywood and refused four roles in a row that required her to play a maid and and she was like, I'm a classically trained and educated Black musician, and I'm not doing that. She demanded equal pay to her white counterparts. Um, she says, I'd rather keep my dignity and my pride and my self-awareness and my Blackness than to sell out. Um, and so she was very particular about how she appeared in Hollywood, only appearing as herself, Um, an elegant stage performer, and she made them list her in the credits as Miss Hazel Scott as herself. She was like, I'm not wearing y'all's gowns and y'all's jewelries because I don't know who had these on before. I'm (laughs) wear my own gowns and jewelry, which might be the blackest thing ever in the world. She sued a restaurant that wouldn't serve her because of the color of her skin. And she refused to play in, play segregated concerts because she was like, how could you come to see me, a Negro, but you don't want to sit next to a Negro? That's right. So, you know, this is at a time where I, I hear celebrities, you know, who are often caught between standing up for what they believe in and making their coins and this lady was like, there is no compromise for me. Like I, and she found a way to make her coins and be who she was. And when it wasn't working no more in America, she found herself a whole nother place. Let me repeat that for y'all who are not paying attention to what's going on in these United States of America. If it ain't working for us, you better find you another place and went to well, Paris. And you remember when we just covered that whole article about black women in record numbers, leaving this oh, place. Leaving so. the place. Anyway, I loved this. Um, we're going to figure out how to do some more. I was thinking, I, I was really thinking, if you all are not paying attention, sorry to shout out another organization or whatever, but Girl Trek, which is a Black women's walking yes. group, has an amazing Black History Month boot camp thing that they do every so often. Right now, the series that they're in that I'm absolutely loving is about crews, like groups of Black people who did amazing things. But they've had um, series on pioneering black women. And I feel like I want to send this to them because I want these ladies to do uh, a walking meditation on Hazel Scott. Thank you, DR. This was hot. I won't echo what everybody else said, but what I saw too was that there's no footage of her TV show 
doesn't exist. Like they have no recordings of it. Like they just, it's just not there. There are videos though of her playing two pianos at one time. And it's like, you were a baddie. You had it. She had it. (laughs) And, you know, her standing up for people really did cost her. uh, And they talk about this Mm -hmm. classic FM has a really good write up on her. And they talk about how in the movie that she was in, um, she the heat's on in 1943 there was a scene in which the wives were sending their husbands off to war and all the black astro- and all the black actresses had been dressed in aprons and everybody else was all gorgeous and she was like no so she left the film and wouldn't come back until the costumes were changed and after 3 days they gave in she returned and the aprons were replaced with floral dresses but the challenge was, is that was almost the end of her career as an actress. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it cost the studio. And by 1945, they pulled the plug on in pretty much any new offers. And even her concert dates were dramatically limited. And Adam Clayton Powell told her that when she became a mom, that was their first kid, uh, that he didn't want her performing anymore. And she was like, okay, cool. And when he was on the road, she still performed. And it's like, I know that's right. Like, don't let her, don't let him, you are a virtuoso. Don't dim, you know, don't she, dim my light, bruh. <laughs> yeah, and their marriage was already a scandal because he was married when they got together. It was like a whole thing. But um, shout out to her for like keeping her gift alive. And so sad the McCarthyism forced her to flee the country um, but her son, there's an Adam Clayton Powell the uh, third, who's a professor, and then there's an Adam Clayton Powell the fourth, who is not her son. That was uh, his son with somebody else. Uh, they're both still alive, so you know the legacy continues. Wait, 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 Duray. Adam Clayton Powell the third with one mama, and then Adam Clayton Powell the fourth with another mama, like Adam yes. Clayton Powell's sons, and they's. Bo- now, I'm not one to talk since my brothers are both named Leonard, but Girl, they got the same we, mama. You know how we are. You know how we are. <laughs> <laughs> so my news, I, I honestly had to read this three or four times to just like make sure I, I was like, is this, did I pull some news from the 1900s? This is 2022. <laughs> so Montpelier is the home of the fourth U.S. president, James Madison, and the birthplace of the Constitution. And there's a board that runs the foundation. So, you know, it's a big property. They do tours. It's a whole legacy thing they got going on down there. And the question is, who should be on the board? That's like the the short version is who should be on the board. The, the board, as you can imagine, is mostly white people. But there's a group called the Montpelier Descendants Committee that they represent some 300 descendants of enslaved people. They had sought to change the board's makeup. And last year, they struck an agreement that would see half of the board seats selected by the descendants of the enslaved. And this makes total sense because it was the enslaved that kept that place going, that built it, that tilled the land. Like, there is no Montpelier without slave labor making it happen. So half is, uh, you know, they should be the whole board. But half is something at least like, you know, if you if that is what we want to deal with, then half is fine. And as you can imagine, the white people who run the board have done everything in their power to have to throw a whole fit to make sure that this can't happen. They fired three senior members of the staff who supported the black descendants. And then a fourth one has recently just been fired. And because what what they essentially did is that they agreed to having half the board representatives 
be from the enslaved descendants, but they were going to stagger when those board members essentially had voting power. So they would be able to be on the board early, and then they would be not voting until a couple months later, four or five months later. And the reason why that matters is because, you know, being on the board with no power, I mean, like, that's not representation. That's that's nothing. But the other thing is that it looks like the white people in power want to make sure that when the descendants of the enslaved get there, that they can't hire the people who were fired, that they can't oust the board chair, that they can't essentially change anything. So that this would be a a cosmetic inclusion. And rightly so, the ins- the descendants of the enslaved community is like, no. Like either they're like every a director is a director is a director. We're not going to have two classes of directors here. And we're not going to let the current board to maintain a majority for five months while we're on the board with no ability to actually do anything. And I read this and it was just really fascinating to see the white people try and like the white people who run the board now try and come up with all these rationales about why they should be in charge and and like do all this sort of mumbo jumbo legally. And I love that the descendants of the enslaved are like holding their ground and just being very firm and clear. And some of the some of the employees who left, like the curator, the chief curator of Montpelier, she is like, yeah, they, the white people don't want there to be anything about race. They don't want there to be a conversation about justice. They don't want the enslaved people to have any power. And she's really upfront and clear about that. So I wanted to bring it here. This should be more national news. It is good that NPR covered it. Uh, I want other people to cover this and follow this story because it really blew my mind. It is a basic demand that Montpelier, a place built by enslaved people, is also managed by them, by their descendants. What's really interesting to me, and we have been talking a little bit about this offline, is the sort of whiteness's last stand, right? at a time where as a country we are trying to um, tell a fuller story, trying to live out the ideals of our country that actually include all of us, you see people in power who are doing everything that they can to hold on to that power. What's interesting to me about this is, you know, there's a whole lot of this stuff happening all over the place, right? From Monticello and, and, and what they are trying to do to tell the enslaved stories or Washington's plantation, Mount Vernon, all of these historical sites are wrestling with, you know, what to do about how we tell this history and the complicated stories of who these white men were, who we think they are as our founding fathers versus who they really were. Um, And the National Trust for Historic Preservation is actually the organization that owns Montpelier and the foundation just manages it, right? So when this whole power sharing agreement came out, in fact, the over the last like little while, Montpelier has been hailed as one of the places doing the most groundbreaking work to partner with the descendants, to tell the appropriate stories, to, to craft a different narrative. And so they were the bells of the historic preservation sort of movement to diversify and whatnot. And in fact, the outgoing um, head of, or executive director of Montpelier really did deep, deep work. She and her senior team did deep, deep work with the Montpelier Descendants Committee 
Um, and they have been heralded for the work that they've done. These senior leaders have been there for 20 years, right? And they've worked really hard to understand the duality of this place. And so when when this you know groundbreaking power sharing thing happened, everybody was like, yes, this is it. There's a model for others to follow. And when they reneged, which is a lovely, you know, black cultural word, reneged, <laughs> it's what happens in spades when you go back, you, when you go back on your books. Um, Let them they, know. When they reneged on the power sharing agreement, the National Trust, which owns the the property, said this is some fragaraga nonsense. The senior leadership team said this is some fragaraga nonsense. Most of the employees at Montpelier said this is some nonsense. And since a petition with over 6,500 people have been like, this is some fragaraga nonsense. But the two <laughs> white dudes in charge, right, the head of the foundation and who, I don't know, y'all tell me who the other man is. They're like, oh, well, too bad, so sad. We going to do what we going to do because we have the power. And, you know, when you look at these senior level people who have literally been working on and with this property for 20 years or 30 years who have worked to craft a different narrative and to be in real partnership with the descendants and to watch these two white men who are, you know, just make this sort of random decision. It's astounding. It is whiteness's last stand. It is, you know, I think it was uh, Frederick Douglass, Malcolm X, Frederick Douglass said power concedes nothing without a demand. Um, these people are demanding. And, you know, what we what I've learned in my leadership is, you know, deep transformational change happens when people work together, co-creation, right? Partnership with community. And Montpellier is trying to do that. And these two dudes are scuttling the whole thing wild. Even some of the conversations I've had around Frederick Douglass and his first wife, who he let, who he who helped him escape from freedom. And who at many summers, he had his white mistress living in the same house as his black wife. And then as soon as she died, he married that white woman. But anyway, that's a whole different story. All that to say, all of these American historical places have all of these undertones, all of these untruths, all of this, all of these things that are taboo. Right. And so as a visitor of these places, it's like you almost have to kind of have have your knowledge and your version of what what the truth is. Um, and so it's just fascinating to see like how we're still grappling as a nation with things that are just actually correct history. So whether that's, you know, conversations around critical race theory, what we're teaching in schools, the fact that we're still trying to evade that slavery happened, that slavery wasn't a crucial piece of this country's history, that the contributions of Black folks are not something that should be celebrated and told about is just, it blows my mind. And so I think, Kai, even with like Montpelier being like a front runner in terms of like being more honest about these stories, even on the website, it's just kind of gives museum vibes. It doesn't give this is a plantation, everybody. Because that's what it is. <laughs> why are we? Why are it's we? It's not a plantation anymore. Now it is a museum. Oh. <laughs> but come on, now I'm with a museum you. about being a plantation. Okay, so I fair think enough. Partly, it's like 
So I think partly it's all, you know, even the website is kind of like this, you know, James Madison, this is the home of the Constitution and the Bill of Rights and da 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 And then when you scroll, scroll down, you see the enslaved community. The Madison family enslaved over 300 individuals. These enslaved men, women, and children were made the Montpelier Plantation function and tended to it its most intimate needs of the Madison family. What are we talking about? What are we talking about? And why is this in like italics? Like it's a wedding invitation and about love. This is ridiculous. Um, For the enslaved, Madison's notions of liberty were a dream denied. Montpelier honors the lives of the enslaved through ongoing slavery interpretation and a new groundbreaking exhibition. The whole place is an exhibition. The whole entire place is an exhibition. Um, can I, I shout can't. out? Can I shout out? I can't. I think one of I the can't. one of the things that I've read most recently that um, really grapples with this: how do we how do we reckon with all of this? Is um, is Clint Smith's book "How the Word Is Passed"? For those of you who don't know, Clint used to be um, one of the co-hosts of this podcast. He's an incredible uh, researcher and author, and all kinds of other things. Um, but in How the Word is Passed, he has a, Clint goes and visits eight or nine different historical sites around the country and in and out of the country as well. I think he goes to Senegal. And the first chapter is on Monticello. And it is all about how, how the tours are being conducted, what stories are being told, how white people are reacting to these new stories that are being told and grappling for the first time with the complexity of who they thought Thomas Jefferson was versus who he actually was. And so if you, if this stuff interests you, um, I would absolutely recommend Clint Smith's book, How the Word is Passed. Um, if, and you'll read the first chapter and you'll get sucked in. It's a great book. Shout out to Clint and, um, we got a lot of historical reckoning to do, y'all. Listen, and as you're doing your summer planning, go to some of these places. Yes. And the most fun thing to do is to write down some questions on some index cards. And as the tour is happening, just pop your hand up and ask your little question. Because it is fun to see people people's reaction to those questions. And it's not just, I mean, it's even at Frederick Douglass house. Like I just went there a couple of years ago and was still asking about his wife. And it's like, uh, 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 you know, or when you go to Eleanor Roosevelt's house and you say, oh, she was living with the women, a woman for 20 years. What was that about? Oh, it was her secretary. Okay. All right. S- sure. So I went summer to planning for the, everybody. <laughs> I went to the uh, White House of the Confederacy in Montgomery. And let me tell you, cotton was the centerpieces on all the tables. <laughs> they had a, um, there was like a children's book about how they adopted a black kid back then and how it was so progressive because, you know, they ran the Confederacy. Oh, this is the Jefferson Davis we thing. This just came out. There was just an article about this, about this little adopted Negro that they, that they had. But, but he was the he was like the pet, and no people don't know what happened to Little Jim or oh, whatever his name was. Yes, so you read the book and you're like, "Was he adopted? Is that the, like I don't know if adopted is the language I'd use." But when I tell you that book is prominently displayed, it is like you go in the house and they're like, "We did not hate black people. He adopted a black child." You're like, the whole house was wild. So 
Dre, yes. I've never, I, what even made you go in there? The number of times I've been to Montgomery, I've always, I've, I've just like sped past, past that place. Cause it was, it was, I don't know. I was down there obviously for protest stuff, but, um, but it was like one of those things where like nobody was there, you know, it was like, we were alone cause nobody goes to it. House. Yeah. It's a go- and they, and the woman was so excited and we were like, Oh my God, we have a lot of questions. And then it was like, woo, this is, and she was really trying to carry it too. Like she really was like trying to be celebratory and you're like, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere. There's more to come. We've seen all the video call fails by now. The mute button mishaps, the cat cameos, people not realizing the camera's on when their pants are off. But none of this makes Fred feel any better about giving an entire sales pitch, mistakenly using a filter that turns him into an itsy-bitsy baby duck. How do I turn that thing off? It's too late, Fred. It's too late. When you realize it's better to do business in person, it matters where you stay. Welcome to the Hilton Garden Inn, Fred. The meeting room is right down the hall. Hilton. For the stay. Now, you know that a common stereotype about Black folks is that we can't swim. (laughs) And it was so cool to read the Afrosurf book, to learn about Afrosurf, the movement, and to talk to Salema because I learned so much about Black people's relationship with water that I didn't know before. And I'm hoping that you learn too. Here we go with Salema. Salema, thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. Thank you very much for having me. When I found out that you wanted to, to hang out for a little bit, I was quite, quite pleased and excited as I've been a, a fan of uh, your work and, and everything that you do and the tirelessness of it and the joy with which you do it for a very long time. So I'm excited to talk to you because I, I knew who you are. Uh, we've connected on Twitter and then we met in real life once, but I, I had no clue that you did surf stuff. So when I got the book Afrosurf, when when people reached out being like, hey, Dre, you should have him on the pod. I'm like, oh my God, we should, because I know nothing, literally zero, nothing about surfing besides what I've seen on TV. But before we start with the book, can you talk about how you even got into this work? Like, what's your story? So I got into surfing because my mother and stepfather moved to Southern California from the East Coast when I was 16. I grew up in New York City um, Staten Island and Manhattan. Mom is, uh, an immigrant from, from Haiti. Father was a political exile from South Africa. And I had a Puerto Rican stepdad (laughs) growing up during the, during the birth of hip hop, um, in the late seventies and early eighties. And then we lived in new England for a little while. And long story short, I came home from school one day and my, my, my stepfather told me that we were moving to a place called Carlsbad in, the northern county of San Diego because my mother didn't want to be cold anymore. She was over the winters. I had no idea, you know, what that place was or what it meant. But, you know, we drove cross country in a U-Haul, got into town at night and then woke up in the morning to walk outside and see palm trees and slow pan right. We were on top of a hill and about two miles away was the ocean glistening in the April sun. So that's, I think, where the curiosity started because I was like, what are we even doing here? I don't want to be here. You just ripped me away from my friends and my girlfriend. And um, it turned out that the town that I lived in, the whole culture revolved around the ocean um, and surfing. And there weren't any kids that there was two kids that looked like me in my school um, in a, in a, a school of about 
right around 2,000 students at my high school. Um, but the majority of them uh, were into skateboarding uh, and surfing. And, you know, a, a kid said, I, I told a kid that I wanted to learn that it looked, it looked cool. And he was like, really? Y'all don't even know how to swim. What do you mean you're going to learn how to surf? And I was like, what? It, and I, I remember him telling me sort of like it was a public service announcement. But that kind of lit a fire underneath me even further to be like, oh, no, I'm going to get this. And the first time that I stood up on a wave for just a few seconds, um, it was a spiritual experience. It was it was it was it didn't feel like playing a sport. It felt like a, a deep soul connection um, with nature and this opening up to yourself that I was not ready for and not expecting as a 16 year old. And then my, my whole sort of life direction um, sort of shifted as I started to build relationship with the ocean. We covered on the podcast a while ago, this idea of, of one of the things that white supremacy did is that it disconnected black people from their relationship with the water, that these narratives of like, you know, black people don't know how to swim and da 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 are so wild given that so many people, especially from the continent are like what water people like water is, is so key to the culture, uh, and only recently have people started to reclaim that in the narrative storytelling, and you do it so well in Afrosurf. How do you think of this project as an issue of justice? Like, why do you, you know, how do you, how do you think about the sort of zoomed out significance of a text like Afrosurf? And then, and what did you, um, what, what was the goal of this? You know, it's funny. A friend of mine sent me a picture this morning. Um, it, there's a there's an Instagram uh, website called Black Archives that showcases, um, you know, very interesting uh, lifestyle photos of, of Black people just living and being, um, going back um, into the 20s and 30s and sometimes the 1800s. And in this photo was portraits of Chicago, 1940s with, uh, you know, a, a culture of black people in and around the Great Lakes, black lifeguards and, and, and swimming pageants, et cetera. And I, I was looking at these photos this morning and all I could see was like the immense joy and how much it looked like, you know, just, yeah, like that's us. We, we are of, of water. And then you, you, you juxtapose that with the images um, of, in, in Chicago of police with dogs getting black people out of, out of white beaches and, and other places in and around the Gulf and Florida and, and the inkwell uh, in Southern California. And I think that like, just when it comes to the outdoors in general, and especially the ocean, you know, white supremacy did a very great job of making, pe making black people especially feel like that's not for us. I mean, we also know that like it was the idea of like one of the last vestiges of safe space was the outdoors um, in the wake of, of um, segregation, creating these, these, these safe spaces look like access to the mountains or, or to the lakes and, and to the ocean as well. And so, you know, when I also, when you think about like who were on those slave ships, um, that came to America. It was, it was, it was fishermen. It was watermen. They were people who knew uh, how to navigate uh, the ocean and the seas very, very well. And the manner in which 
um, the, the punishment, the idea of, well, obviously we know the trauma of, of the trips, but also the manner in which, you know, the, the water was used as a, as, as a threat, you know, if you escaped as, from swimming, et cetera, you know, the, the consequences were going to be very, very, very high. So I think that, like, when it comes to this book, for me, it was twofold. One, my family being from South Africa, um, the first time that I went to South Africa to go surfing uh, was in the wake of, of, of apartheid ending and my father moving home after exile for 30 years. And ironically, on that trip, even though the laws had just ended separating um, blacks and whites, there were no longer segregated beaches, I didn't, unbeknownst to me as a 19-year-old kid, I, I found myself challenging um, the principle of that uh, in Durban, South Africa, where after a few days, the cops tried to arrest me and, and they threw me off of a pier because uh, they had been watching me go surfing. And the irony that like I was there from for the first time with my dad who hadn't gone home for 30 years, I tried to go surfing and they're like, no, you don't get to do that. Um, and, and, and in high school, just being told constantly. And I, and the more that I, that I fell in love with surfing, the more people told me, Hey, it's really cool that you're doing what we're doing. We're doing our thing. You're a different type of black guy. You're more like us. So all those things together, I think, um, when we had the opportunity to start to, to do this book, it was, I wanted it to be loud and I wanted it to be very much in people's faces, um, to wake them up to something that they didn't know. And, and which is this larger conversation of our, as you mentioned, our, our natural and historic relationship, um, to the ocean. And also like this, the deep, deep, deep healing power of, of, of water, you know, for me, Going surfing, going to the ocean has always been a place where I'm able to leave everything on land behind and simply just be, you know, marinate in that 90 something percent of water that's in my body and, and feel this union with the ocean um, and opening people up to the to hopefully a larger possibility of like the idea of what ocean culture and surf culture looks like is not and cannot be um limited to, you know, blonde hair and blue eyes and being from Southern California. I love it. Can we zoom out and talk about like, what is surfing? So when I think about surfing, I think that it means to like get aboard and ride a wave. That is what, I don't even know what that actually, I, mean, I can see it in my mind, but that's like, if somebody asked me like, what does it mean to surf? That's what I'd say. Is that right? Yes, but it's also not limited to, um, to the board. You know, there, you can get fins, um, short, short, short fins that you put on your feet and learn how to catch waves just by swimming and ride them with your body. It's called body. Really? Surfing. With no, with no board? Yeah. With no board. Um, yeah, just, just YouTube body surfing and you're, you know, you have your mind blown, um, at, at what, what exists and the possibilities of that look like. Um, there's also bodyboarding, um, where you lay on, on sort of a board that's like half the size of you that you lay on that you don't stand up on. Um, but yeah, there's various sort of, at the end of the day, it's all um, wave riding. You know, the, the, the Hawaiians uh, do so in, uh, in, in, in boats, um, in, in catamarans. Uh, it, it's, but it's the idea of basically harnessing this energy. And when you stop and think about what a wave is, a wave is just energy that moves through the water from thousands of miles away from, giant storms that are generated in the middle of the ocean. That energy has to go somewhere. 
and its final resting place where it dissipates that is is at the shore and before it dies that energy dies on the shore there's this wave that is formed as the the water gets shallower and that's what you're riding you're just riding energy that is moving through the water that finally doesn't have any room to go anywhere because the water is shallow um and it's a it's a it's a very very magical experience to sort of you know, you, you, you're the engine. You have to, you have to put yourself in position and read, learn to read the ocean and what it's doing in order to catch the wave in the right, in the right place and then ride it. And then that, that very short wave, you know, that sometimes is 10, maybe tops 30 seconds. If it's a long point break, um, those moments can feel like a few seconds can feel like forever sometimes in the way to sort of time uh, slows down as you as you're navigating riding this energy. Now, why the book? Why AfroSurf? Tell us about the book. Tell us what your vision was for the book, uh, and then also well, let's start there. And then I have a couple of questions. No, the the book was 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 based out of uh, a brand that I co-founded. That's based out of Cape Town, uh, called Mami Wata. Um, Mami Wata being this West African. Um, water deity, um, goddess of, of, of the ocean. And it was like, you know, this, this idea of being able to, you know, showcase and, and, ha- and, and expand the idea of what surf culture looked like. And as we were having these discussions about like what that could be, um, and being a brand from, from the continent, from Africa, it was just like Afro surf. And everyone was like, oh, yes, that could be it. That's a vibe. Um, and then what if we did a book where we were able to showcase what surfing looks like in and around the African continent? And that it is not that this idea of surfing, which we see in the media, is constantly being, you know, um, either like a Southern Australian or Southern Californian coastal, very, very, very white thing is so much more than that um, as, as, as far as what the culture can be and look like. Not taking anything away from the, the, the indigenous sort of um, Polynesian narratives of surfing's origins, but also being like, yes, guess what? African peoples have been riding waves for thousands of years. In fact, going all the way back to the late 1600s in Ghana, it's documented. Let's unpack what that looks like and also showcase that this thing is thriving in Africa and also that it's, 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 it's interwoven with the diversity of modern African culture. You know, I think there's this Western perception of Africa, first of all, being a country, not a continent. Um, and this idea that like Africa is a place where I'd like to go to one day and see the animals and go on a safari and then get on a plane and go home or maybe, you know, climb Kilimanjaro or go and help those people that need so much help and build a well and feel good about myself when I come home. But like completely immune to the richness and the diversity um, and the joyful energy of modern day African culture as it, spans across the continent and it's and it's it's 
contribution to to pop culture and the zeitgeist. Um, and it was like, what better way to to sort of make people curious, force people to be curious about African peoples and culture than through this very unlikely lens that they had no idea existed um, through surfing and thus Afro surf. Boom. That's what a different. I saw. You know, people have talked about people of color, black people surfing and. I was like, oh, I get it. And then when I saw the book, I'm like, wow, this is like much more of a big deal than I thought. Like I knew it was a big deal because I'm like, black people had to be in the water, but the book really contextualized for me all the different stories and all the different, it was like cool to see. Um, what do you think the misconceptions are about surfing? Like besides mine, where I was like, I, can't, I didn't know you could surf without a surfboard. That is, that really <laughs> is new to me. Uh, what else do people get wrong or what have you heard as you have you as you talked about the book or you have a whole surfer brand as, as people sort of start to get aware of black people in the surf space? I think the um, the main misconception is that it's just is that it's a quote unquote white sport as if that was even such a thing. But it's um, I think that's the one of the main um, misconceptions is that it's it is a white sport or something that white people came up with. Um, I think there's obviously the, the old stereotypes of um, Coley and, 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 and strictly stoner mentality associated with surfing. Um, everybody that I talk to who's not a surfer, the first question is like sharks. Um, and that like, if you're out there, obviously you're going to be attacked by a shark. Is sharks not a thing? Sharks are a thing in the same way that, like, when you get on an airplane, there's a chance that, that some things might go wrong. Um, I, I think you have a greater chance of being struck by lightning than you do of being attacked um, by a shark. But they are a thing, and there are some places that I would never surf. You know, there's a couple of islands off the coast of... Uh, of Africa, um, like the Seychelles that are just, it's a problem there. It's like, it's actually a problem, but I've, I've never, I've seen sharks in the water and had to get out. Um, but I've also surfed in, in places like the Maldives and Tahiti in and amongst reef sharks, um, that don't have any interest in you. And one thing from, from spending a lot of time in the ocean, you just, you, you start to learn how the ocean works. And that sharks, for the most part, are not interested in you. But of course, you know, every once in a while, um, there will be an incident, which is usually mistaken identity. Um, but the press around a shark attack, obviously, with the, our cultural relationship with Jaws, etc., makes people think like, yeah, that's not for me. Um, that must be happening all the time. Um, but, it, but it really isn't. And I think one of the other misconceptions is, is or not even misconceptions, or something that people don't, aren't aware of, is that it is is something you build relationship with and it becomes a lifestyle. And that is the type of thing that you, you, I endeavor to do it until I'm physically unable. Like I can't picture my life without access to the ocean in that way. Um, just for what it gives me and my ability to, to function and have peace in a, in a very, very wild world. How can people get involved? So people who are interested in the surf community and, but d might not live near water or don't think they live near, I don't know. Like how can people get involved in this work besides buying the book? People should buy the book. Um, well, yeah, the book is a, is a great place to start. There are some really, some really great groups um, 
that are showcasing what what surfing looks like for for black people um, and storytelling it and and doing um, surf lessons. You know, if you come if you're coming out to California and you and you wanted to learn and you're like, I would like to learn and, and be in and amongst um, black people. Uh, there's that that's a thing. You know, there's an Instagram account called Black Surfers, literally just Black Surfers. Um, and when you see like the diversity of, of the different types of Black people that are standing up and learning how to surf, um, you you're blown away, men and women. There's a group called Textured Waves. Um, that is a collective of black women that decided a few years ago, we're going to showcase what this lifestyle and culture looks like strictly um, through the lens of, uh, of black women, all the way down to like, you know, the specifically black issues of like, how do I navigate the ocean with black hair? And what does my hair care look like, et cetera. And so they really make it, they, they, they take away a lot of the myths and they really, talk about surfing specifically in a, in a, in a language um, that helps black people be like, Oh, okay. Uh, maybe I can get down with this. Um, and it's, 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 it's been, it, there's, there's another organization called color the water that's based here uh, in Manhattan beach. Um, there's a group uh, called Ebony beach club. That everyone should follow. Um, any, a, a great um, music producer and, producer and DJ um, named Brick. Uh, he and another, another brother named Gage Christman founded this, uh, this group and started a small brand called Ebony Beach Club. And they, they do these great beach parties where people, specifically for black people, um, or I should say centered around black people, anybody can come, but you know, with, with lessons and DJs and this mix of like what a black cookout looks like, but at the beach with surfing and surf lessons. So, um, yeah, those, just those right off the bat. If you, if you went on IG and saw the storytelling that was going down, you'd be like, okay, I have to put this on my list of, of a thing I need to experience or, uh, and be a part of. Boom. And how do people stay in touch with your work? Um, I'm easy on, on Instagram, um, Twitter, etc. It's just at Salema S E L E M A. Follow me through the brand, uh, through Mommy, Mommy Wata, which on Instagram is Mommy Wata, M-A-M-I, Wata, W-A-T-A, um, Mommy Wata Surf. There are two questions we ask everybody. The first is, what do you say to people who, who feel like they have done everything they were supposed to do? They email, they call, they testify, they read your book, they read my book, and the world still looks the same to them. The world hasn't changed in the way they thought it would. What do you say to those people? Whew. To those people, I say... Um, the world is changing. It's not changing anywhere near as fast um, as you and I want it to. And for actual change, I believe, permanent change to stick, it requires um, much more process, I think, than we desire, especially when it comes to the dismantling and the breaking down in order to build back up. So uh, I would say keep your head up uh, and keep keep doing the right things and keep keep pushing for the change that you can affect in and around your circle um, and try to find ways to live with as much joy as possible, despite the fact that we are in immense, immense, an immensely dark time, um, not not to lose hope. Um, yeah, I just think for, for me personally, there was so much that I thought, yeah, we would have. I thought we were going to be past this 
ages ago. And as I settle into, into my middle or age, I'm realizing like, Oh, this is what the grind is like. And I think about what, what that work looked like through all through the various generations, especially when it comes to black struggle. Um, yeah, it's, it's sadly, it's, it's just the process for actual change is, is slow. That makes sense. And then the last question is, um, what's a piece of advice that you've gotten over the years that stuck with you? The greatest piece of advice that I've gotten over the years that has stuck with me. My father gave me a, a, a great piece of advice. He said, Hey man, I need you to understand that, um, you're never going to have it all figured out. And if you're waiting to get to this time when you wake up, uh, and you understand everything and you have it all sorted, I have bad news for you. That day is not coming. So get on with your existence. And I, I take it to heart. <laughs> I, I, I've taken it to heart. You know, the idea of, uh, of just of, of, of knowing it all and, and having it all figured out doesn't exist. So staying curious, you know, having the, the ability to continue to learn and understand that like learning and adjusting and core shifting is what we do for the existence of our time here takes a lot of the pressure off. Boom. Well, we consider your friend of the pot and can't wait to have you back. Thank you so much, Dre. It, uh, like I said, man, it's, it, it is a pleasure and an honor and, Keep doing, keep doing the damn thing. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning into Pod Save the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we will see you next week. Pod Save the People is a production of Crooked Media. It's produced by AJ Moultre and mixed by Charlotte Lands. Executive produced by me and special thanks to our weekly contributors, Kai Henderson, D.R. Ballinger, and Miles Johnson. seen all the video call fails by now. The mute button mishaps, the cat cameos, people not realizing the camera's on when their pants are off. But none of this makes Fred feel any better about giving an entire sales pitch, mistakenly using a filter that turns him into an itsy-bitsy baby duck. How do I turn this thing off? It's too late, Fred. It's too late. When you realize it's better to do business in person, it matters where you stay. Welcome to the Hilton Garden Inn, Fred. The meeting room is right down the hall. Hilton. For the stay.